and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel. Happy summer. Happy birthday, America. Happy 160th birthday to Union Pacific. And today we're going to talk all things Union Pacific, which is one of the most consequential railroads and companies in American history. And uh, with us today, you're going to hear from John Turner, who is a man who knows his company and its history inside and out. I guarantee you're going to learn some interesting stuff and have a newfound or renewed appreciation for the vital role that the rail industry and trains have in our day-to-day life and enabling our economy to work. And I think you're going to have a better appreciation for just how transformational the rail industry was in the history of human civilization. And that is truly not an overstatement. So John Turner, John's got a big job. His career with Union Pacific began back in 1998 as a conductor. He worked his way up through the transportation ranks, holding a variety of positions, gaining him extensive experience in railroad operations. And he is currently the senior vice president of Union Pacific's Harriman Dispatching Center and Network Planning. And the Harriman Dispatching Center in Omaha, where Union Pacific is headquartered, is really an iconic place in the rail industry. It's described on Union Pacific's website as the, quote, central nervous system of the railroad, where we manage locomotives, crews, and dispatch trains for the entire Union Pacific network. The most important responsibility of the HDC is protecting the safety of our employees and the public, end quote. The Harriman Dispatching Center was built in 1891 as a freight house for Union Pacific. Over 900 employees work there 24-7. It's just a really important and critical um, integral uh, part of Union Pacific and the rail industry as a whole, where they are um, managing a lot of the logistics and safety-sensitive information that is covering Union Pacific's 32,000-mile network. It's kind of a a Fort Knox, if you will, that is built to withstand the most extreme forces of nature should the grid go down. So as Union Pacific marks its 160th anniversary, let's hear from John on how it all started, the history of Union Pacific, where it is today, and where it is going. John, thank you to History Factory Plugged In and uh, looking forward to talking to you and happy 160th anniversary to Union Pacific. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me and we're, we're excited to, to share some of our history here today with, with you and the group. Thank you. And well, let, let's start with uh, 160 years ago. Uh, how, how would you describe the, the origin story of Union Pacific? Well, that's that's really one of the fantastic things about working for the Union Pacific is really our origin story. Um, in 1862, um, Abraham Lincoln um, signed the Railway Act, and that's really what started and formed uh, the Union Pacific. It was actually a combination of the two where the Transcontinental Railroad was being built by the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific. Um, which are both part of the Union Pacific today, but that was really the origins of it is, you know, uh, I can't think of another company that has an origin story that begins with the signature of Abraham Lincoln and something that uh, we take a great deal of pride in. 
Yeah, and that's interesting because you know, to your point, the the origins of the company uh, started with essentially a, a, a government uh, directive, and obviously, you know, the story of of you know the railroad industry over over the years and the story of obviously regulation and deregulation. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, but also, what's interesting about that is even from day one, you talk about this notion of both. Um, and I'm sorry, what were the two groups? It's the the Union Pacific and the and what was the other group? Central Pacific. Central Pacific. Yeah. So that that kind of notion of and obviously, you know, as you think about railroads, it's kind of ironic because it's literally a physical man, manifestation of the business. When you think about connecting, you know, networks and, and connecting uh, all these different rails. But how did that begin to play out for Union Pacific and for the industry more broadly in terms of that kind of story of mergers, acquisitions, and consolidation? Yeah. So if you if you put yourself in the context of you know the late 1860s into the, the early 1900s, really railroads were the only major mode of transportation. And Complete coverage of the the rail network was uh, largely happened around the the early 1900s, and as you can imagine, um, there was huge speculation, and as a result of that, the rail system got overbuilt. So to put that in context, um, in 1900 there were over 130 what we would call Class One railroads. Out those would be the largest railroads relative to some of the other smaller ones. And today there are only seven. Hmm. And the reason for that consolidation really was that there just wasn't enough business for all of those entities to survive by themselves. And when it got built, there was so much significant duplication that it just made for a very, very challenging business environment. If you add to that the construction of the uh, the interstate highway system that allowed for faster and longer um, longer distance travel. Um, this resulted in increased competition for the railroads. And as a result, the railroads were really forced to consolidate and rationalize just as a, just as a method of survival. Mm. So if you think about the, the Union Pacific and in our history, the family tree is made up of about at least 30 different, what we would call predecessor railroads. And some of the major, most recent railroads today that, that make up our over two, 32,000 miles of mainline system uh, within our network were really, in 1983, um, we combined with the, the Missouri Pacific. Um, in the late, uh, or 1989, we combined with the Missouri, the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railway, sometimes referred to as the Katy. Um, in 1995, we, we combined with the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. And then lastly, um, the, the Southern Pacific in 1996. And that one, that one has some uh, significance dating back to my first comment about our origin. When you think about the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific, um, in 1912, uh, our the Department of Justice actually broke apart the Central Pacific and we were split apart. And so mm. in 1996, it was a, a kind of a reuniting of the old Central Pacific with the Union Pacific and something that uh, 
that makes a, makes a lot of sense, both operationally and um, for our history. So, yeah, yeah. Not to mention, of course, the the pun on bringing the the South and the Union back together, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, you know, and it's interesting because when you think about the rail industry, it really is probably so emblematic of American industry and the evolution of American business over the last 160 years as a whole. And you know, and I think when you think about the the, the rail industry, it's also an icon, I think that's that's symbolic of 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 progress and and in many ways, you know, the expansion and, and growth of the rail industry, you know, has really been kind of a, a mirror of the expansion of the United States and certainly, you know, in the first fifty or sixty years, um, the the expansion west. Are there other other highlights that you think about in the context of of the Union Pacific's history that you feel like? is emblematic or um or mirrors uh the the kind of change and growth of the united states yeah so uh when i when i think about that um stephen ambrose wrote a wrote a book about the union pacific called nothing like it in the world and that's because there really was nothing like it in the world it was um, a very significant achievement um to have a transcontinental railroad at the time yeah. If you think about it, uh, the technological leap forward was really a quantum leap. And back in the 1800s, that would have been the functional equivalent of what we would kind of call the Internet of its time. So it's just a, a massive quantum leap and, st- and step forward. And so if you think about what that meant, um, a typical trip to the West Coast would have taken months before the railroad. And the completion of this transcontinental railroad really shortened that trip to days. So just massive achievement in terms of productivity and efficiencies and stuff like that for for the travelers. And this really allowed us, uh, allowed the United States to um, expand its trade and help usher in the Industrial Revolution. Um, if you, and so as you kind of think through the history of the Union Pacific, you know, not all things are always rosy and perfect. And so in the late, in the 1890s, the Union Pacific actually went bankrupt and that entered in someone, a, 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 a person who is very significant in the Union Pacific's history. In fact, um, E.H. Harriman was one of those key figures in helping build that, that UP history. So much so that our our centralized dispatching office in Omaha, Nebraska, is actually named after him. It's the Harriman Dispatching Center. So a huge part in that, and, and what Mr. Harriman did was, you know, he really rebuilt, modernized the railroad. He helped to expand it from uh, L.A. to Seattle. And along with those, you know, you think about all the the different technological advances throughout the years. Um, you think about the largest big boy steam engines. Um, moved from that to gas turbine electric engines to uh, a 6,600 horsepower diesel locomotive to even today's low emission um, low emission uh, locomotives. In addition to that, I, I mentioned um, you know Mr. Harriman and his name being on our dispatching center. That we've really been at the forefront of what we call computer-aided dispatching or CAD dispatching, and that allowed us to centralize those dispatching functions. 
as well as um, we think about distributive power technology inside of our inside of our locomotives, allowing to run um, longer, more efficient trains. And this allowed us to be more efficient in, in terms of our transportation. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You raise a you raise an interesting point too, because you know, in, in my experience, and we've done some work with with rail companies over the years, and I, I think that the well, first of all, to your point of just how world changing the emergence of rail was. I mean, in, in some respects, it was so much more impactful in terms of the leap in progress than say the emergence of the automobile um just in terms of you know to your point the ability to move from traveling you know weeks or months on end down to days and obviously the ability to 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 ship across land um but i often have found that you know to your point that one of the things that's just really kind of over overlooked uh with respect to to the rail industry is how complex it is and how it really has in many ways just kind of stayed at the forefront of of technology yeah i think um a lot of times people think of railroads and they, they think about um a kind of an antiquated network of things that have kind of largely stayed yeah maybe advanced a little bit because they can see the the locomotives on the trains but it largely kind of sits in this background yeah but it, it really is the the backbone of uh the backbone of our economy and over time we've been able to as an industry and as a company been able to you know advance things in a in a very meaningful way that are very modern and very contemporary, I think more so than most people would uh, be aware of, or at least be conscious of. And so we, yeah. you know, from constructing large, large hump yards to even most recently, um, the advancement of positive train control on our systems, which is um, something that we've invested almost $3 billion in over a period of time that allows us to get more real-time information than what we've had access um, in the past, as well as huge safety um, implications relative to collision avoidance systems and things like that. So huge advances and very much more technologically advanced and savvy than, uh, than what most people would know. Yeah. And I, and I didn't mean to cut you off, John, there were there other things that you wanted to, to highlight uh, as you were talking about some of the the parallels of history. I got, I got them in there, Jason. Okay, yeah, good. Uh, All right. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, and I touched on this before, John. But you know, the, the other thing I'm fascinated to kind of learn more about is your take on kind of the story of of, of regulation and, and deregulation. And I think you've touched on some of the kind of themes or, or drivers of of that, but if you can maybe speak a little bit more to the regulation and deregulation story. Right, so the railroad industry was was the largest in the US at the time of what was referred to as a, as a gilded age. And during this period of time, um, there were low wages and, and somewhat poor working conditions that, that led to the railway, the railway Labor Act of 1926. And this Labor Act really preceded a lot of the other labor laws in the U.S. Hmm. And it, it subjected our industry to a lot of challenges 
um, relative to labor agreements and processes that are we still suffer from today in terms of their challenges and complexity and things like that that um, could you could use some um, could use some improvement for sure and you know so there were definitely in the early 1900s there were some monopolistic print, um, tendencies and things like practices that led to some trust busting act activities and ultimately led to rate regulation hmm. as a result of you know some of the some of the behavior of the railroads back then and their investors um, this led congress to pass the interstate commerce commission in 1887 and also or the Commerce Act in 1887, which ultimately led to the Interstate Commerce Commission. And from its inception, you think about the actions of the commission and kind of the context of when they were making decisions. Um, this commission, along with uh, other government agencies, you know, really contributed to some challenges in terms of the industry's ability to, to kind of be uh, self-regulating in any way. And so many of the, it led to kind of a nationalization of the railroads in, in World War One, And ultimately it was, you know, reprivat reprivatized in 1920. So fast forwarding, you had a lot of regulations of rates and, uh, you know, many of the other business terms. And this, this continued until 1980 when a key event in all of the U.S. rail history happened, which was the Staggers Act of, of that time, and it really freed the industry up by deregulating it and allowing it to compete on price and service. And this also allowed for a lot of the, the redundant routes and very unprofitable routes um, to be more rationalized easily versus some of the, some of the early um, constraints that were placed on it by and placed on the in, placed on the industry by the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission of its time. Got it. And I, I'm sure a common question. Uh, so, so I'll ask it: Is where does the story of passenger rail play in this? I mean, did Union Pacific historically have passenger rail, or was it always freight? Uh, did the did the rail, railroads traditionally do one or the other, or did they do both? And how did this sort of passenger rail kind of story evolve to, to where it is today, where you don't have, obviously, this kind of diverse choice of picking different passenger rail rail lines like, like you would an airline? Yeah, one of the, one of the items that, that came through um, loud and clear for the freight railroads of that time is that passenger service you know, over decades, um, really wasn't something that was, um, was profitable mm -hmm. and it really impaired the railroad's ability to, to grow and to thrive and to be able to reinvest back into their network. And that's really, that really, um, bore the, what we, what we see today, which is what we call Amtrak which is a nationalization of our, of the rail network itself in terms for passenger service. And there are statutory, statutory requirements and things like that in terms of dispatching protocols, access and things like that, that have evolved in um, relative to Amtrak and passenger service, especially national service. 
And something we take, you know, I know all the railroads take very seriously, but that was one of the byproducts of allowing the railroads to begin to invest and to thrive and uh, not have the, um, the requirement or the obligation to continue passenger service over time. Got it. And you mentioned, John, that there's seven primary players today in the American uh, or North American uh, rail industry. Is is the Union Pacific known specifically for 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 one thing versus another? Do, are there kind of different things that the different um, companies are, are are known known for? Uh, when people inside the industry, you know, hear Union Pacific, what might that mean to them? I think there are a few, there are a few key things. Um, the first one is, that comes to mind is, uh, and I've people have articulated this to me in the past from other rail carriers at different meetings and things like that. And the Union Pacific is really thought of as an industry leader, and some of that is a byproduct of the advantages of our rail network. We are the largest, most diverse. Um, commodity mix franchise in the in the industry uh, we are blessed to have a very robust um, geographic distribution and and a very diverse um, amount of markets that we're able to serve because of our geographic footprint the other thing is and I and I think inside of being an industry leader is is that we have individual departments that are really recognized across the industry and thought of as being like really thought leaders relative to their counterparts. And I think some of that is the, the respect of our franchise and frankly, the, um, and probably more important than that, um, the people that, that work for our company and our approach to doing business, not only with our customers, but uh, with other interline partners throughout the industry. And it's interesting your point on on thought leadership. We touched on this a moment ago, but I wanted to ask about the sustainability story and and how you know to your point, you know, rail has made that transition from uh, I guess originally you know coal and then diesel and then gas and now increasingly electric and you know how how has that sustainability story evolved and again i th- i think it's something that's that's sort of misunderstood or not as well known as it probably should be um, by you know society at large because my understanding unless i'm wrong is is that today's modern rail is an incredibly efficient means of of transportation from a from a environmental footprint perspective um but i'm curious you know how that that um how that issue has changed over the course of time and the role that the Union Pacific has played in that transition. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked, Jason, because it really is at the, at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, Certainly our customers and other prospective customers, when you think about, you know, ESG initiatives and and being able to do that, but rail is, you know, when you think about putting it in that context and you think about rail itself today, uh, we're the most environmentally responsible means of moving ground and uh, freight transportation today. And so when you think about that, um, we can move a ton of freight more than 450 miles on a single gallon of diesel fuel. 
Hmm. And, you know, you kind of try to put that in, in context and what the opportunities are in terms of in, improving our, our carbon footprint as a society. And rail moves about 30% of all the, uh, the freight ton miles, yet it only accounts for about 2% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And while, while that is terrific, there are opportunities for us to, to do even more. When you think about Union Pacific's um, ESG strategy, and we announced that in our Building a Sustainable Future for 2030, and it's really built on five pillars. Building responsible foundations, investing in our workforce, championing environmental stewardship, driving sustainable solutions, and strengthening our communities. And so Union Pacific is, is working to reduce our um, absolute scope one and scope two greenhouse emissions by 26% by the year 2030, uh, with an ultimate goal of reaching net zero by 2050. Um, in addition to that, um, in the more near term, we're increasing our alternative fuel blend usage from 10% uh, in, by 2025 to 20% by 2030. And we're working very closely with the, with the OEMs for our locomotives um, to continue to make progress on that front. And wow. said, in, in addition to that, um, as we talk about doing even more, uh, we we had an announcement earlier this year where we purchased 20 battery electric battery electric electric load of locomotives, um, almost a hundred million dollar investment to work in a, to work in our yards and to start testing them and then and then being able to take that information that we learned from working in the yard and be able to expand it more broadly across our across our network. And so we're we anticipate having all those units on our property. Um, by 2024, and we have two test sites picked out, one in the uh, Los Angeles Basin and the other one in North Platte, Nebraska, where um, the world's largest hump facility works and operates. So a huge commitment um, to do that. And the reason why we picked those locations is one area is obviously very hot and another area is obviously very cold. And so we're trying to, to test the yeah. limits of the capability in, in real time. That's awesome. And you mentioned in, in the context of sustainability, you know, the opportunity for uh, for, for different markets to to obviously uh, use freight. You talked about, you know, specifically to to your company, given its diversity, you know, the, the number of different markets you can serve. But are there specific markets that you all are, are do a, an especially large amount of, of business with? And are there particular uh, markets that you see is really not taking advantage of rail to the scale that they should, or, or, or is the answer to that, they also take more advantage of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little greedy here and say, yes, absolutely. Everybody should do more rail. Um, uh, we think we offer um, a great transportation uh, service and, uh, great service to our customers and great geographic reach, as I mentioned earlier. But when you think about some of the, to your uh, specific question about large producers, and you think, you think about all the stuff that we're engaged in, 
Uh, we do a lot of business with chemical uh, manufacturers. We've got a, uh, a huge footprint in the Gulf Coast and the, in the Houston area. We do a, uh, we do a robust business um, with a, um, a beer uh, manufacturer, if you will, mm-hmm. that uh, ships a lot of, a lot of product um, all over the United States. Um, in fact, we do set business with several of those. Uh, we've got access to many paper and lumber mills, huge uh, plastics network, as well as steel mills. And then some of the things that traditionally get associated with the rail transportation um, that are more commodity-based or, you know, coal, grain, rock, um, those types of uh, commodities are very considered pretty tied to the um, to the Union Pacific and to, to rail in, in, um, in general. Yeah, that makes sense. Really heavy stuff. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we do really well hauling heavy, heavy stuff over a long distance, but I, I can tell you over time, um, we're engaged, we're heavily engaged in things that would have historically been shorter distance and things that maybe rail carriers wouldn't have considered in the past. And so we're, we're excited about the future. Yeah. What, what do you find is the most misunderstood aspect of, of the industry? There are really three things that, that come in mind. Um, the first one is, is that we play such a critical role in the economy of the U.S., yeah. largely unheralded, largely in the background, but almost everything we use on a daily basis was transported by rail, either as a raw material or as a finished product. And if you think about the amount of the efficiencies of moving by rail, all of that additional traffic would have been on our U.S. highways today had it not been for rail. Hmm. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second one is, we touched on it earlier, is that the sophistication of our operation and how much we rely on technology to support and run our business. Um, we, you know, I, I didn't touch on it earlier. I mentioned um, kind of our, our CAD or computer-aided dispatching systems and things like that, but we're more and more even putting handheld devices that look like your, look like your, our cell phones that we carry around in the hands of our crews. And they're providing real-time um, information back to customers and within our own operating systems to um, deliver um, products and things like that. And it's allowed us to be safer and more efficient over time. We most recently, we cut over our newest edition of what we call CADEX. And that allows us to, to more efficiently move trains across our network from point A to point B. Uh, we've got an autonomous spray technology um, that, or t- spray train that we're using um, in our engineering department. All kinds of things like that in terms of the technology and the things that keep our, keep our network moving. And then the third one, and, and this one's really important, is the dedication of our of our field professionals and the people that work for the Union Pacific are unparalleled. We talked about the the Transcontinental Railroad at the beginning of our conversation. There were people that sacrificed, really the ultimate sacrifice that that helped build what we enjoy today. And that level of dedication and sacrifice 
exists in our company. And, um, you know, they, when you think about how much time they spent away from their family to working odd hours, because we are a 24 by seven operation. Um, and all of this is, is with the eye in mind of being able to serve our customers well and um, do what we say we do want to do or what we said we would do over time. And I, I think our people um, inside the Union Pacific are truly special. And frankly, what differentiates us from our competitors in other industries and frankly, our competitors in the rail industry. That might, that might set you up. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite kind of questions I like to close on is, um, you know, what's one favorite story? You know, if you were, if you were at a bar and you got to tell, you know, one of your favorite stories about, about the brand, uh, what, what might it be? It's, it's interesting. When I, when I was the uh, general manager of our Utah service unit, we actually, the, I mentioned the, the big boy uh, steam locomotive. And that, the locomotive that we use today um, was actually in a museum in Los Angeles. And we, we took the, we, we, we made a deal with the museum there in Los Angeles to, to make a trade that allowed us to get access to this locomotive and ultimately refurbish it. But as you can imagine, trying to get something this big and this heavy to Cheyenne, Wyoming was a pretty large undertaking. And I didn't have a full appreciation for how much that locomotive, how much our history, how much our heritage as a company really meant to people, not, not just people that work for the Union Pacific, but people that are from around the world literally came from stop to stop to, to see this. And it was eye-opening when the, when the locomotive got across the, the territory and reached um, Salt Lake City. There were thousands of people that came <laughs> out to see that locomotive. And they were, they were so eager to um, not only touch that, but to hear about it from the crew and others. And it's, I'm so proud of our company and the things that we have done and things that we achieve and the things that we allow others to do, but to see how others see us as a company and as a brand, um, it's really heartwarming and it makes me, it makes me really proud to be, uh, to be part of this rich heritage. That's awesome. And Obviously, 160 years old uh, this year, but but seemingly still still going very strong. Uh, what do you see for uh, for the for the future of rail and for the future of the company? Well, the Union Pacific's got a bright future, and um, you know certainly things that we talked about all the technological changes and uh, people's buying habits, the geography in which they live are certainly changing over time, and so. A lot of our focus and a lot of what we see in terms of growth is really largely tied to um, some of the basic commodities that I, that I mentioned earlier, but really tied to intermodal growth and being able to expand our reach beyond um, being able to connect to our franchise just via a rail spur, um, but really trying to see how we connect into the greater supply chain as uh, being a partner to not only 
rail to rail, but also truck to rail, ship to rail, that sort of thing. That's really where the future is. And that's, that's where we're pointed and where, that's where our focus is. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and your insights. Uh, congratulations again on uh, the 160-year uh, milestone, and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you. It was all my pleasure. I appreciate the, the conversation and the, and the questions. Thank you again to John Turner and happy 160th to Union Pacific. That's our show. And this is the last episode of this season of History Factory Plugged In. We're going to take a break for the rest of the summer, but we may jump in here and there with a bonus episode if we can. Have a good summer. Be well. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel.